Welcome to Future of Tech, hosted by Avishai Sharlin, Division President of Amdocs Technology. In this podcast, Avishai sits down with some of the most innovative minds in technology to learn how they are disrupting the present and what kind of impact they hope to have in the future. From the machine learning programs that are solving some of the world's biggest problems to what AI can do to help fight biological bottlenecks in human thinking, no topic is off limits. So sit back, relax, and maybe take some notes because what you hear on this show might just be a glimpse into the future. You may have noticed that you're hearing more about cybersecurity in the news than you have in the past. That's because cyber attacks are growing in scope and frequency, and organizations large and small are beginning to understand exactly what is at risk when you have a vulnerable system. Christian Espinoza has been aware of these risks for years, and he's been sounding the alarm to anyone who would listen. Christian has a background as a cybersecurity consultant. He founded his own cybersecurity company, Alpine Security, and he wrote a best-selling book about cybersecurity. He shared his perspective on the subject with us on this episode of Future of Tech. Christian says that one of the major problems with cybersecurity today is that in terms of defense, IT functions in the same way it has for a decade. So as cyber criminals get more sophisticated, the back end of many systems has remained stagnant, leaving organizations vulnerable to all manner of bad actors. But Christian also offers solutions, including bringing a more hands-on approach to your organization, changing the way we all communicate about cybersecurity and the risks of leaving our technology vulnerable, and how to structure your departments and prioritize hiring to ensure that cybersecurity stands alone. Enjoy this episode. Future of Tech is brought to you by Amdocs Tech. Amdocs Tech is Amdocs's R&D and technology center, paving the way to a better connected future by creating open, innovative, best-in-class products and continuously evolving the way we work, learn, and live. To learn more about Amdocs, visit the Amdocs technology page on LinkedIn. Great having you with us. So I'd like to welcome uh, Christian uh, Espinoza, who is uh, my guest for Future of Tech, this episode is, is about cybersecurity. We're going to chat about many, many interesting things. So first of all, great seeing you and welcome. Yeah, thank you. Happy to be here. Now, when usually we start with a few, you know, personal, let's say, background uh, material uh, questions, but uh, I'd like, you know, to, uh, to, with you, with your permission to ask you some, uh, some stuff about your, um, your career and some pointers that i've seen in your in your bio which made me like uh, very interested to understand i've seen that uh, you you uh, joined the air force mm-hmm. and i've seen that you are uh, you like spicy food <laughs> and also that you are uh, practicing for ironman um, as a, as a triathlete so and also you know some some other uh, interesting stuff that maybe we'll speak later on about so I don't know what to start with, but uh, maybe we'll start from uh, the Air Force. How did you find yourself in the Air Force? I 
grew up uh, in in a rural part of Arkansas, like extremely poor. Uh, we were on welfare and food stamps and WIC, which is like government cheese and powdered milk and things like that. So I didn't have a lot of options for college. So I ended up applying to all the military academies, West Point, which is like the Air Force Academy, uh, the Naval Academy, uh, and the Air Force Academy. And I ended up getting accepted to the Air Force Academy. So I, I because I that way I didn't have a, a lot of means to go to college. I basically applied for every scholarship and every military academy. And that's why I ended up in the Air Force. I went to the Air Force Academy. The catalog looked cool. looked like um, uh, a lot of cool activities in Colorado. It wasn't quite like the catalog made it sound like. It was uh, you know basic training for a year, basically. But yeah, that's why I ended up uh, going to the Air Force. And then after I graduated from there, I was in active duty for almost six years. Interesting. And how did you uh, continue your uh, academy career? Only later? Yeah. So one of the good things about the Air Force, once I graduated from the Air Force Academy, I graduated with a, an engineering bachelor's degree. Uh, one of the things about the Air Force is if you are an active duty, they'll pay 75% of the next level of college for you. So while I, as soon as I graduated my first duty assignment, I went ahead and registered for for an MBA program and went to school on weekends and the evenings while I was active duty. Uh, and this was in Texas. And I got my MBA while I was in active duty and the Air Force paid for 75% of it. So I took advantage of you know the, the offerings they had for education. Perfect. And how did you find yourself then uh, meeting cybersecurity? My first job in the Air Force was communications. So I went and did... Uh, a communication school in Biloxi, Mississippi for about uh, five months. And a lot of that was basically IT, but there was a security component to it because we have classified networks in the military and things we have to protect. So early on in my career in the military, I was doing IT-based stuff like systems engineering, network engineering with a natural like cybersecurity. We didn't call it cybersecurity back then. It's more information assurance or information security, a natural element to that, of that to the um, IT stuff that I was doing back in the day. So then when I, I got out of the military, I decided to focus on cybersecurity because I had this interest in hacking and penetration testing. I thought it'd always be fun to you know, get paid to hack into things. And that's kind of where I started my career. I, I did a lot of penetration testing and ethical hacking and I sort of evolved it from there. Interesting. And today... You're, you're uh, like a cybersecurity expert, consultant. Uh, what exactly? How would you define your, uh, your current position? Yeah, today I would define myself as uh, a leader or an executive in cybersecurity. Uh, I sold my company Alpine Security in December of 2020. So right now I'm acting as a managing director for the parent company, Cerberus Sentinel, that bought my company. So I'm, you know, leading some strategy, some sales, some marketing, but it's all in cybersecurity, but I'm not doing the, you know, hands-on keyboard work anymore. Yeah. Yeah. So when, when you're looking at the overall very complex um, cyber security world today, how can you, for a layman, take us through, you know, a journey and, and try to give me an, a snapshot of, of today's world? Yeah. Today's world, I don't think it's much different than it was five or 10 years ago from a, a defense perspective, I think the same fundamental things are what we tend to be missing. 
So from a defense perspective, you know, the attackers always get in the same way. There has to be a vulnerability typically. And a lot of times uh, it's not like a zero day or brand new attack. It's an existing vulnerability. So one of the things that we have neglected to get good at or get great at is, is vulnerability management, like patching our applications, our um, operating systems, making sure they're configured properly. All of that is still like an area that we haven't really gotten very good at it. So the attackers get in that way and then using some sort of like social engineering method, like, like phishing. And, and then again, they've been using that tactic for a long time and, and users are still curious and are still going to click on links and still do things that the attackers know they'll do. But from an offense perspective, the attackers have evolved, the cyber criminals have evolved the attacks to be more focused on things that have a, a tangible or visceral effect or a physical effect. Like if I can attack a medical device, for instance, and I can increase the, the flow rate of a mor- morphine drip, then I can actually kill somebody. If I can get ransomware to hospital and delay the intake of a patient that had a heart attack, that person can die. If I can affect like the pipeline that you know transfers gasoline and oil, for instance, then I can have an effect on the economy. Uh, so there's a lot more attacks today that affect us uh, in our day to day you know day to day lives that that weren't so much in the past. In the past, is like somebody defaced a website or somebody stole your credit card information, and that stuff is you know is problematic, but it's certainly not as problematic as a meat packing plant being compromised and maybe all the meat has an issue that's in all the grocery stores and people could die from contaminated meat or something like that. Clear. And do you see um, a difference in terms of uh, being proactive versus reactive in, in this sense during the last years? I think there's a movement to be proactive. I don't think it's been very effective. Uh, it's much better, you know, obviously, to prevent something like prevent ransomware or prevent an attack like that, then try to respond to it. But our, uh, I think we've overly complicated the industry with like frameworks and a lot of things that ultimately, if you have like a hundred point checklist, which a lot of people try to follow like a hundred things, and we try to do them all very well, we're, gonna, we're not going to do half of them very well. And I think there's too much emphasis on a lot of things versus a few things that matter. And if we were, to, we were to pare it down to a few things that matter and, and do those really well, like the vulnerability management, the phishing training, maybe having decent backups, then we would be in a bet- much better position. But I think we've overly complicated the industry. So in that sense, uh, you've mentioned, you know, several of those. Are there others that we need to, uh, you know, put as a higher priority than, uh, than the rest? Yeah, I'm a big fan of the CIS, uh, the Center for Internet Security, top 20 critical security controls. And the top six are considered the basic security controls. If you do those, uh, there's been a lot of studies and data behind it that shows if you're able to master those top six, then you can reduce the likelihood of an attack by like 85%. So from my perspective, why do anything else? on the list until you've mastered those top six, which are things like I talked about, vulnerability management, knowing what devices are on your network, knowing what software is authorized, making sure you have secure configurations. You know, you don't just install the machine when it comes to the mail, you know, just put it on your network. Uh, making sure not everybody has administrative privileges. And, and, th- and those are like the, the things that a lot of people think they have uh, mastered, but they really haven't, especially based on 
my experience in doing assessments, you know, the basics are often skipped or done in a haphazard manner. Do you see, um, I would call it um, an importance in the sense of how the organization in terms of the culture and the way it uh, works uh, with security threats is being designed and, and uh, the processes that are being uh, adapted? Is this something that uh, you see difference between organizations? Yeah, the, I see a massive difference in, between culture and organizations and about cybersecurity. I think one of the, the challenges with cybersecurity is it's a little bit um, intangible. Uh, so the organizations that I've seen that have had the best culture from a cybersecurity perspective have made cybersecurity tangible. Uh, as an example, I did a penetration test for a bank uh, several, you know, many years ago. It was probably like eight years ago. And the bank hired me to break into the bank and try to steal some information. So I was able to get into the bank and steal some files. And the thing is, after I debriefed the bank and the person you know, that I stole the files from, because they went to the back and left me an attendant at their desk, they understood the importance of uh, cybersecurity and, and what we could do because we made it visceral and real to them versus just uh, talking about it. So I, I think whenever you do an exercise, it helps with that culture because a lot of people do training but the only way to measure the effectiveness of training is to do some sort of exercise to see if your people actually will, you know, not let somebody tailgate to the door or not click on the phishing email or not leave a person unattended where they can steal files. So it has to have that follow-up component, which I think helps drive the culture because it, it makes it more realistic. It makes it more real. How did the cloud evolution or the fact that many of us are using public clouds or a permutation of um, edge devices is, is um either increasing or, you know, uh, creating uh, the, the cybersecurity threat bigger? I think there's two parts to that question. Uh, first, if you're using a cloud provider like uh, Microsoft for email, like Office 365 or Gmail uh, versus an on-premise uh, server, I think there's it's more secure in that regard because somebody else is managing it. Like if I'm using a CRM like Salesforce or HubSpot and it's in the cloud and it's Hub, HubSpot or Salesforce managing it, that's going to be more secure than if I install it on my premise, right? So if you're using a service, like a software as a service, I think there's some more, there's more security. The challenge I've seen is when people set up their own systems in the cloud, like a platform as a service or infrastructure as a service, and the responsibility lies on them to configure it properly. That's where there's actually been way more vulnerabilities and things stolen from my perspective than if it was on premise. Because if it's on the cloud, and if it's on Amazon or a, you know, AWS, for instance, everybody knows the IP ranges of Amazon. So they just scan it every day looking for a new system to pop up. If you have a new system with an unsecure S3 bucket, then somebody can compromise all the data in your database and everything there a lot easier than if you have you know, on your on-premise network behind a firewall, for instance. So I, I think, yeah, for software as a service, I think it's more secure. But uh, when people stand up their own servers, from my experience, is less secure and it's actually been a problem. And people tend to think, well, it's on the cloud, so it's more secure and they, they care a little bit less about the security until something happens. I have maybe a very basic questions, but how important do you see the role of a password? I think there's limited utility in a password. I'm a fan of passphrases. 
that are longer without complexity requirements, but combined with some secondary factor for authentication. I mean, basically your password or passphrase is going to be compromised at some point. So you need this second factor. It could be uh, you know, an authenticator app on your phone, could be a text message, could be anything like that, but your password uh, or passphrase is gonna be compromised at some point, almost guaranteed. Now, let's assume you, you gave earlier a, an example about a bank that you went and you did some stuff and then they, uh, they understood that there um, the, are the, the possible threats. How would you suggest to companies to ensure that moving forward, they are practicing and making sure that uh, threats and, and the cyber threats are being uh, an ongoing part of their life? Yeah, this kind of goes back to what I said earlier about the, the testing. So we can think we have the best defenses from a cybersecurity perspective possible, but until those have been tested, we don't really know if they're working. So I'm a proponent for testing the inside, the outside, and the people, basically. So from a, if it's an organization, I think an external test should happen. So somebody tests like all the public-facing systems and tries to break into them. An internal test should happen. So someone should try to, uh, let's see if they can hack in on the internal network. And this would simulate somebody putting in a thumb drive that's compromised or somebody clicking on a phishing email to see what the vulnerabilities are inside. And then also test like with a phishing campaign or maybe a, uh, that combined with a, a vishing or you know somebody calling over the phone to see how weak your users are. So we would test from three, three aspects, really. You know, your users, the external and the internal. And with that coverage, you get a pretty good idea of where you're weak. And then you can strengthen the, your defenses in those areas that you're weak in. So I, I want to go back into your uh, personal career. You, you've mentioned the Air Force. So you graduated, you took some extra years. Uh, what, what happens then? You are going out of the army and? Yeah, I, after I left the Air Force, I was uh, became a defense contractor or contractor for the Air Force for a while. I worked um, in a unit called ScopeNet. We would travel to different Air Force bases and optimize their networks for performance and also for security. So I did that for several years. Uh, then I did some freelance work as well, where I did um, some training, cybersecurity training for a lot of different organizations. Uh, I did consulting. And then in 2014, is when I started my company, Alpine Security. So I had this progression from, you know, Department of Defense contractor. Uh, I did some commercial work as well. And then I did freelance and then I started my company. So I kind of saw like multiple facets of the industry. And what drove you to become an entrepreneur and to have your own company? When I was doing freelance work, I got bored with it, basically. You know, it's like solopreneur work. So I've, it, it became routine and easy for me. I was making you know, a lot of money and, and had a pretty good lifestyle, but I didn't feel like I was growing. So I thought the next way to grow is to start an organization and hire people and contribute to the economy by you know, hiring people and, and try to shift the industry uh, with more than just myself, with an organization. Uh, and I also thought from a growth perspective, my own growth, that if I have a business and have to deal with you know, client retention, cash flow, all the aspects of business, having a vision, leadership, managing people. If I had to deal with all those things, it forced me to grow as an individual as well, because growth is important to me. From your experience, 
How complex is it? Because cybersecurity, once you go into the details, is complex, very technical, and you need to go into the weeds of, of the technology. And then you need to explain it to a C-level person, which is uh, not necessarily a techie. What are the means, besides saying, you know, I was able to penetrate to your organization, uh, which maybe creates the, the next uh, PO, what means do you suggest and how do you, uh, what, what are the techniques that you've used in order to explain the threat and later on to convey the right messages to uh, non-technical people? I think the technical areas for cybersecurity need to be explained to a board of directors or C-levels or anyone that's an executive in the business in terms that they can understand. And typically, I look at it in terms of risk. You know, with a business, risk is a fundamental concept. It's also like the fundamental concept of cybersecurity. We just often tend to forget that. The whole reason we have cybersecurity is to reduce the risk of somebody breaking in and stealing data, like our intellectual property, or taking our system offline. So we need to like look at it in terms of risk and explain it in terms of risk. So if if somebody was able to penetrate our network, you know, what is the risk to the organization? What could they do? And how is that going to affect the organization's bottom line? And, and what we often miss in cybersecurity, and I talk about this in my book, is we expect everyone to understand, like, hey, I broke into the domain controller. You know, I, I, I got all the accounts. We expect someone to understand and make, connect the dots, like what that really means to the business. And most people don't understand that. And even most cybersecurity people can't articulate it in terms of how that affects the business. So it's important that we alter how we communicate because I'm a believer that the meaning of communication is the response you get. So if you're not getting the response from the person you're talking with or communicating with, then your message is not being received. So it's up to you to take the ownership and alter how you're delivering that message. And, and then, as I mentioned, it should be tied back to risk ultimately because people tend to understand risk, especially in business. Give me an example. Give me a simple example. Yeah. So with um, uh, like one of the clients we had in the past uh, was a medical device manufacturer. So one of their devices had, had a vulnerability and the device tested bacteria. So it would test like what type of um, infection you have, and then it would recommend an antibiotic for you. And we were able to compromise these devices where we could alter the integrity of what it said it tested for and what it recommended. So basically, if, if you were tested positive for, let's say, COVID, it could say you were negative, for instance, and vice versa. And that device was used in industry as well as clinics. So one of the things they didn't think about was like the industry, they didn't think it mattered that much. So we had to like look at the risk like if we were to do this, what's a use case that, you know, can help them understand the risk? And this particular device was used in the hamburger production industry. So it would test hamburger for E. coli, uh, as example. Uh, so, you know, the hamburger would be produced, they take a sample of it, they test it for E. coli. And if this device were compromised and somebody had like tainted hamburger with E. coli and the device tested negative for E. coli, even though there was E. coli in the hamburger, then you could kill a lot of people. So the risk was a lot greater, but they hadn't thought about that sort of scenario of how someone could use uh, this vulnerability against them and the impact that scenario would have to their brand and to their consumers and anybody else that you know used their devices. So it's important 
I think to connect the dots for people and show like this is a use case and, and this is a realistic use case. Uh, we've seen some similar things to this recently. Uh, and after I explained that to them, they kind of understood, you know, why it was a, a big deal and why they should fix it. Do you see cybersecurity as something to be dealt with the IT department, the network department, both of them, the CSO? Who is the, do we need a CSO? Everyone. How do you see, you know, within a big organization, who is the owner of uh, the cyber threats? Who's the one, the go-to guy that we need to speak to? Yeah, in an organization, the go-to person should be a CISO, a Chief Information Security Officer, or CSO, Chief Security Officer. It should be someone adjacent to like a CIO or CTO. There's been way too many problems when you try to put cybersecurity under IT, because IT is trying to you know, enable the business from an automation perspective and all that. And cybersecurity in some regard is hindering that progress. So there's like, there's a little bit of conflict of interest there. So it needs to be separate function. And then I think the, the head of cybersecurity should report to the CEO because it's, it's about risk as well. So that should be the, the, the head person of cybersecurity should be a CISO. And in terms of the uh, skills that we're expecting people to obtain, um, do you see a need for upskilling Students coming from universities or the, the, new, uh, the new employees, or is it something baked already in the uh, new programs and universities? How do you see cyber as a whole being attacked by the industry? I think there's a lot of emphasis on technical skills and verbiage uh, and acronyms, and there's not enough emphasis on how cybersecurity relates to a business. It's, it's, it's almost treated like, you know, cybersecurity is an industry unto itself. The reality is, if there were not other industries, there would not be a need for cybersecurity because it's very much like IT. And I don't think that's emphasized enough in any program that I've been aware of in university or anything else, uh, because cybersecurity should be in alignment with a business's uh, objectives. And it should be considered part of a business versus a separate thing. So I think there's too much emphasis on just cybersecurity, like in a silo and the technical aspects of it as well, because the, the key areas that need improvement on are communication skills and cybersecurity. So like we kind of talked about, if I am the lead architect in, in, in a cybersecurity company, but I can't explain to my board of directors or my CEO, the cybersecurity risk, then the board of directors and the CEO is not going to be able to take the appropriate action. And they're probably not going to give me the support I need. So that communication skills and the fact that cybersecurity is a support industry in that gap is really, I think, what needs to be focused on in any program. And we've like completely overlooked that. And I think a lot of the issues we have today are, are a result of that. So in, in that sense, in a given organization, when you have a CISO or a CSO and you have the uh, attention, do you believe that there is an ongoing process or upskilling way to make sure that the organization, the, the different uh, developers, program managers, whomever, are being exposed to cyber threats? Is this something that needs to be constantly reminded or practiced or? Yeah, I think it does need to be reminded and practiced. One of the challenges we have in cybersecurity 
is how we measure success. And we all, our, our measurements are a little bit skewed, in my opinion. Basically, we say, you know, we haven't been hacked, so we must be doing something right. Uh, and that's, that's, that's not a very good measurement. Um, a lot of people are already compromised, but they don't know it because they haven't actually done threat hunting or figured it out. So I think having measurements such as how many attacks were successfully stopped, how many vulnerable systems we still have, how many we patched last week, you know, measurements that kind of show progress, but also show the attacks coming in will give some perspective because users don't know this either. Uh, CEOs don't know this. They don't know how many attacks were successfully stopped. And that's the challenge with cybersecurity is, you know, we can patch, uh, if we have a thousand things to patch and we miss one of them, then the attacker can get in, even though we got 999 right. And a lot of times management or leadership doesn't understand, like, look, we got these 999 things correct. We just missed one. So I think having some measurements of focusing on what we're doing correctly and how to measure closing that gap so we don't miss the one and see what threats are actually coming in are, are important things to look at. That's you. Going back to your uh, entrepreneurial phase, what would uh, be your, you know, something that you can uh, share as a lesson learned from, from those days that is important for our uh, audience? One of the biggest ones for me was I made a lot of hiring mistakes at the beginning. And what I, I realized was I, were, I was hiring people that weren't in alignment with what I believed or my core values. So then after analyzing these people I hired that were problematic, I realized there was uh, seven core values that I had that they did not have. So I established core values for a company because I used to think you know, core values are a bunch of garbage. I, you know, other companies just have them on the wall and nobody follows them. But when I actually looked at my company, the problems were because I had values and the other people weren't aligned with those. So once I established those values and hired people for fit based on my core values versus how great they were technically, a lot of my problems went away with people. So I would say that, and then also being able to tune into your gut and follow your gut. You know, I think it's important to be slow to hire and quick to fire before I had kind of the opposite approach. I would hire someone fairly quickly because I had a need and I thought this person, you know, is magically going to solve everything. And I didn't do enough due diligence. And then I'd be slow to fire them thinking that they're going to improve over time or I'm going to give them a second chance and a third chance. And overall, the whole time my gut was telling me to go ahead and let this person go every time. And my gut wasn't wrong. I mean, if I listen to my gut uh, versus like rationalizing my head or feeling compassion to the person, I would have been right 80% of the time. So I, I think following your gut instinct is extremely important as well. Give, give me an example. This is uh, fascinating. Give me an example of a of, uh, few values. Uh, one of our core values is, um, is ownership. So taking ownership of a situation. So we, we do a lot of courses, for instance. We, we teach courses. And I had this theme in the past where one of the instructors would blame the students for this or blame the room uh, for not being the right temperature or blame something else versus taking ownership that I'm the instructor. This is my room. I'm going to figure out, I'm going to go get a fan. If it's too hot, I'm going to make the projector work. I'm going to come up with an alternative, alternative solution. I'm going to take the student aside during a break and try to like fix the scenario. But the ownership should be on them. 
uh, versus just complaining about the scenario and trying to push it somewhere else. And I am a big believer in neuro-linguistic programming, which I talk about in my book. And basically there's a, you know, you, you could be living at cause or living at effect. And I, I'm a believer that you should be living at cause, meaning you cause the things around you versus, you know, you're at the effect of whatever, whatever thing else is causing you. Uh, and that is a core value that I established and it made a big difference. Another one was um, communication. So listening carefully and responding clearly is, is one of the, is how we phrased it because I would have, my team would have meetings with a prospect or a client and they would not hear what the client is telling them. So they weren't listening, they were just talking. And that was a massive problem. So once I established that, you know, our communications got better as well. And then once you establish those core values, what we did is we measured people how well they were performing based on the core values. So it wasn't just how great they were technically, it's also how, on a scale of one to 10, how are you with our core values? And then here's what you can do to improve if you're, if you're you know, not doing that great in one of them. Now, from your experience, what would be the one of the uh, big differentiators between a good entrepreneur and an okay entrepreneur? A bad entrepreneur, we know, is, uh, is going to bankrupt. But uh, what about... Uh... <laughs> well, yeah, a, a bad entrepreneur might bankrupt, but uh, I think a bad entrepreneur, in the, if you're using that definition, could become a good entrepreneur if they learn from that experience, right? So a lot of it is learning from the experience. I think one of the things from an entrepreneur perspective that's helped me is, um, and I've made these mistakes, I think part of it is, is being able to change your tactics. You know, you have to have, be willing to let go of something that's not working for you and change it. So one of the mistakes I've made in the past was thinking if I just worked harder, it's something that I could break through, right? But it's, that only gets you so far. You have to, at some point, step back and say, you know what, this got me to here, but it's not going to get me to here. So I need to change my strategy and my tactics. So as an entrepreneur, being able to recognize that that you're stuck at a like, glass ceiling because what got you here won't get you there. And being able to, to change that tactic or that strategy is extremely important. And I think also as an entrepreneur, being able to deal with discomfort is important. Uh, it's, it's, you know, when I started my business, you know, I thought it'd be a lot easier than it was. I thought I'd have free time. I thought I'd be making a lot of money. And, you know, I almost lost everything a couple of times. I, you know, it's like one paycheck or one receivable away from like not making payroll. So it's like, there's a lot of discomfort you have to get used to living with and be able to push through that and maintain your state while you're living with that discomfort, because it can be, um, it can be rough. You know, there's a couple of days I just felt like crying in the floor in a fetal position, but I can't show up for my employees that way because then they're going to get all stressed out. So being able to like deal with that discomfort, I think is, is extremely important as well. Yeah, I hear you. Been there myself several times, so I can definitely uh, <laughs> uh, hear you. You're working for many years in the cyber uh, cybersecurity um, ecosystem, and I'm wondering what what keeps you tick. What makes you excited about cyber? You know, uh, people are doing the same thing day in day out. Why why are you still interested? What makes you still strive to understand and learn more and and to continue and uh, work in this uh, ecosystem? One of the things that I think keeps me in the industry, because industry can be very frustrating, the personality types and, and uh, the odds are against us. You know, as a cyber criminal, it'd be a lot easier to make money 
and uh, probably a lot funner, a little more risk. But um, I think one of the things that keeps me engaged is I understand my my why. And a couple of things I think about, and this is what I focused on with my business, Alpine Security, was like medical device testing, for instance. That's one of the niche areas we focused on because there's been a lot of advances in healthcare and a typical hospital bed has like 14 connected devices to it, like connected to the internet in some capacity. So I, I would hate to think, you know, a loved one of mine or my grandmother or somebody, you know, I care about that is on one of these critical devices saving their life, that that device could be compromised and cause them to have a complication. You know, the advances in healthcare, we don't want those to have to be rolled back because of vulnerabilities. Uh, so that's one of the things I look at. And then the other thing I, I look at as well is I, I'm a believer that small to medium-sized businesses are extremely vital to our economy. And a lot of cyber criminals, if they're successfully take out a small or medium-sized business, and that business has to pay credit, credit monitoring fees to all their clients, those fees alone can take that business out of business. So then it, it impacts the economy. And in, in, in my area, I live in Illinois, right outside St. Louis. Um, I'm here net today. Uh, there's like some small towns. There's a you know, small to medium-sized manufacturing plant in that town. And that company, that manufacturing plant hires like the majority of the town. So if something happens and that plant is has a cyber attack, ransomware takes them out, then the entire town is basically decimated in some of these small towns in Illinois, for instance. So to me, it's 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 a little more visceral than just like I'm stopping the bad guys. I try to look at it from like, you know, the neighbor in that town, if they lose their job, what's the impact going to be to the economy? Or my grandmother in the hospital, if um, her device is, is hacked, that's uh, saving her life, you know, that's that's not going to be a good feeling for me, right? Yeah, I hear you. And this is uh, definitely a worthy cause. You know, completely out of context, uh, I've read the, the latest book of Lee Child is about uh, a small town being ransomed by uh, by cyber terrorism. So, uh, um, yeah, it's, it's funny, but um, what makes someone do 24 times Iron Man? Insanity. <laughs> no, uh... To me, it's uh, it's it's having something on the calendar and and working towards it. It's like you know, there's a a destination or a vision, and um, you know, it's something to, to strive towards and give purpose to, like my training. Because I used to like a long time ago before I did Ironmans, I would just go to the gym and like lift weights, and there was really no reason. And then I started doing triathlon, and you have an event on the calendar, and it sort of like gives you a reason to train. And it kind of becomes your lifestyle because you get to train to go to this event. The event's, uh, you know, challenging. It's a, a different location. Uh, there's your friends and family can go. So it's like there's something on the calendar that's uh, interesting. And for me, it's um, I just did one like two weeks ago in Tulsa. It's really um, about the journey for me of the Ironman. I think the Ironman triathlon is like a lifetime compressed into like one day. Cause you've got so many ups and downs, you know, you feel great. You feel horrible. One minute you want to quit the next minute you're running. You know, there's all these emotions that go through you in a compressed time frame. And I think from a mental perspective, I like it because it makes sure I'm sharp mentally and gives me uh, an opportunity to strengthen my mind uh, outside of like, you know, work type stuff. Nice. You've mentioned several times the, um, 
your book, The Smartest Person in the Room. Can you share more about it? What is it all about and uh, what, what made you write it? Yeah, I wrote the book based on my experience with my company, Alpine Security. There was a, a meeting where my team was debriefing me on how a report review session went with a client. My team was had previously talked to a client about the results of a penetration test or an ethical hack. And one of my teammates, um, one of the guys that worked for me, kept saying that the client just didn't get it. Like they didn't understand the risk. You know, we talked about risk earlier. And for some reason, it struck me differently. And I'm like, you know, our clients need to get it because if they don't get it, they're not going to become more secure. And I'd heard like they just don't get it or management doesn't understand or the users are stupid. I'd heard variations of this theme throughout my entire career. And something about that moment clicked a little bit differently for me. Maybe it's because it's my own business or these were my clients. Uh, and I decided to do something about it. So I, I came up with a lot of different training, uh, you know, emotional intelligence training, communication training, the core values, the culture, people skills training, monotasking training. I came up with all this stuff that I did in my company for my team. And what worked ultimately ended up being in the book. And there's said the seven steps I have in the book, I call the secure methodology. Very nice. So, um... I want to, uh, to thank you very much for joining me. It was a pleasure. Hopefully next time we'll be face-to-face. -face. Yeah, that, that'd be super. <laughs> I have a face-to-face -face event. I'm actually speaking in July, an in-person event in, uh, right outside of Dallas. So it might be one of the first cybersecurity conferences that's in person. So oh, right. Kind of excited about that, yeah. Perfect. Thank you, Christian. Yeah, thank you. I appreciate it. Thanks for listening to Future of Tech. If you like what you heard and want more, make sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app. And if you have any comments or questions, feel free to write to our host, Avishai Sharlin, directly on LinkedIn. LinkedIn.